Imagine that you have a sudden illness and your entire life changes. What would happen with your job? Only 17% of Americans have access to paid medical leave. What would happen to your family? I'm Kelsey Timmerman. And I'm J.R. Jameson. Today on The Facing Project, we'll explore living to work and working to live. I love what I do. Listening to other people's stories, sharing stories, traveling, doing this show. Yeah. I wouldn't want to do anything else. But a couple of years ago, I applied for several jobs, including one loading boxes at UPS. Mm -hmm. Did you know that? Yeah, I do remember those. Yeah, it's a good time. UPS never called, but I did end up with another phone interview for a job that better suited me. During the interview, they said I seemed to like my work and asked why I wanted a new one. I made up some answer and it felt like one of those Dementors from Harry Potter was sucking out my soul. The actual answer of why I was looking for a new job? Health insurance. Mm. My son Griffin was diagnosed with autism when he was two and immediately started expensive one-on-one therapy. Since I don't have a normal job, we bought health insurance through the exchange. So every year we shop for new insurance. In 2018, the only insurance that we had access to would no longer provide him with an in-school therapist. So I went looking for a job that offered health insurance. Never found one, and we could no longer afford his therapist. Fortunately, he thrived at school on his own. But still, that's not a decision we wanted to be pushed into. Employment, health, and access to health care is a challenging crossroad that many Americans struggle to navigate. I've actually had the opposite experience. So since graduating from college in the early 2000s, I've always had day jobs with full health insurance and such low in premiums, like unrealistically low. I'm talking like $40 yeah, a month. That makes me mad. Which is, I know, and I, I feel bad even saying that, but you know, my passion projects, my writing, telling stories, this show, those don't give me insurance. And if I wanted to pursue any of these full time, I'd have to think twice because I can't lose my health insurance. I just, I can't, right? So we have a seriously messed up system. And also every time I hear you tell your story about your situation, too much. I mean, it makes my heart hurt and I feel helpless. And I wish I could give you access to my benefits, but alas, I'm married to somebody else and you are tragically hetero, so we would never work out anyway, but... Well, can, what, can I marry Corey? Um, no, no, you can't. It's me or, or the high I can marry Corey, you can marry Annie. Okay, well, yeah, so we'd figure that out somehow. But I mean, seriously, though, our professions, our access to healthcare, our workplace culture, these things can make or break us. As you are listening to this, take a moment and think about what you would do if you were sick or you had to care for a loved one who was sick and had to miss a significant amount of work. What policies are in place at your employer? How would your boss react? How would it impact your coworkers and the work that you do? Can you afford to be sick? Many Americans are struggling to fight for their lives and for their livelihoods, often pulled in two different directions. Medical issues and debt lead to two-thirds of bankruptcies. Adults with cancer are almost three times more likely to go bankrupt. And those patients who file for bankruptcy have a 79% greater risk of dying early. Our jobs, our physical and financial health are inextricably intertwined. This is true for expecting mothers as well. 
Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act states that discrimination on the basis of pregnancy, childbirth, or related medical conditions constitutes unlawful sex discrimination. But the New York Times found in a 2018 comprehensive study that regardless of profession, pregnancy and having a child is often cited as the moment women stop getting promotions. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission has indicated that the number of pregnancy discrimination claims has risen for the last two decades, and tens of thousands of women have filed suit against many major U.S. companies. But this isn't true of all organizations. Several Fortune 500 companies are adopting inclusion practices to make their workforce cultures a place that is adaptable for all workers. Which brings us to today's stories from Des Moines, Iowa, and Principal Financial, who led a company-wide facing project in 2018 on inclusion in the workplace. And we're trying something a little different. A mashup. A mashup? Like like Glee? You remember the show? The, yeah. the sitcom, choir sitcom? Are we going to have a musical episode? Do, re, me. Oh my gosh. Uh, no, actually, we're <laughs> not going to do that at all. But... The stories are complementary. One told from the perspective of an employee whose son was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis, and the other told from the perspective of her supervisor, who became one of her biggest supporters during that time. Jackie Stroop shared her story with Brandy Sexton, and it's performed by Chandra Ford. Sean Dowling shared his story with Allie Windergerst, and it's performed by Larry Beck. And later in the show, we'll be joined by Miriam Lewis, the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer for Principal Financial. I remember Drew, my husband, taking our son, Major, because I was shaking too hard to hold him. I knew he had tested positive by the way the doctor came into the room. When I was pregnant with Major, I felt that something was wrong, but didn't know what. Major didn't move a lot but all the tests came back fine. The night after Major was born, he wasn't eating much. We sent him to the NICU to be tube-fed. The neonatologists began talking about genetic diseases. They gave Major the test, and we got the results. I was at a baseball game, a team outing, when my phone rang. It was Jackie, one of my employees. I could tell something was up right away. I stepped into the hallway where it was quiet. I wasn't sure how to support her in that exact moment. Typically, as a leader, these situations happen at work where you're in your element. You can think through the steps to take to get your team member the support they need. But this one caught me off guard. I remember having to compose myself to say, okay, what can we do? And going from there. At seven days old, Major was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis. What the doctor said in that moment made me feel like we were going to be all right. He said there are a lot of hard times ahead, but there will be a lot more good times than bad. We cried at first, but we quickly moved to fight mode. We told people right away, we figured we may as well rip the bandage off because CF wasn't going anywhere. Most people don't know this disease, so we'd say, Major has cystic fibrosis, a genetic lung disease. Cystic fibrosis is a progressive genetic disease that causes persistent lung infections and limits the ability to breathe over time. 
In the lungs, mucus clogs the airways and traps germs, leading to infections, inflammation, respiratory failure, and other complications. In the pancreas, the buildup of mucus prevents the release of digestive enzymes that help the body absorb food and key nutrients, resulting in malnutrition and poor growth. In the liver, the thick mucus can block the bile duct, causing liver disease. In the 1950s, most people diagnosed with cystic fibrosis didn't live long enough to enter grade school. But thanks to medical advancements, people with CF are graduating college, getting married, having kids, pursuing careers. But there's still no cure, and the daily therapies and medicines are time-consuming and really expensive. Currently, one of the most promising drugs costs $311,000 per year. There are 70,000 people with CF worldwide. It wasn't a surprise that Jackie returned pretty quickly after maternity leave. I think she needed some semblance of normalcy. She was very open about her situation, and everybody knew what was going on. Many times employees, rightfully so, don't want to share what they're going through, but I think it made her more comfortable because there was no beating around the bush about where she was when she couldn't be at work. I had planned to be a working mother before the diagnosis, and I wanted to continue down that path. I knew my mom could stay home with Major during the day, but it wasn't easy. I felt like I was leaving all the time for doctor's appointments and finishing work at night. Those first few weeks, we spent time trying to figure out what was best for her. Knowing Jackie, I was cautious not to throw out a lot of ideas. I didn't want her to think I was pointing her to one solution or another. She was already worried about the time she was missing. With an infant and a lot to learn, it was hard to balance the administrative work of his disease. My team leader, Sean, helped me create something that worked for me and most importantly for my whole family. Now I'm more comfortable blending the two. This is important to note. This type of flexibility is rare. And according to the New York Times, most U.S. workers do not have access to paid or flexible parental leave. In fact, the U.S. is the only industrialized country that doesn't federally mandate parental leave. This is soon to change, though, at least for federal employees. In December of 2019, the Senate passed 12 weeks of guaranteed parental time off, with pay, for 2.1 million civilian workers employed by the federal government. Yet 80% of U.S. workers still do not have access to paid parental leave. The Family Medical Leave Act of 1993 allows up to 12 weeks off for employees, but that only covers those employed by organizations with 50 or more workers, and employees have to have been with the organization for at least one year. Oh, and also, those 12 weeks off aren't always paid. After a few months, she started to take Major to the doctor on a weekly basis. He needed to go, and that's just the way it was. She was trying to manage working and, and dealing with new things about his diagnosis being thrown at her every time she went. Finally, she came in one day and said, what if I work four 10-hour workdays? My response was, I've been waiting for you to ask me that. I was never worried about her ability to get her work done. I knew she would do everything she needed to do. That's just the type of person Jackie is. My only worry was that I wouldn't understand her situation enough. There's no one-size-fits-all solution with these things because every employee reacts differently. You have to have a plan for every individual. And plan is a strong word, because nothing was planned about that or any of these situations. 
Cystic fibrosis doesn't have to be your whole world. Some days it is, but I'm still Jackie who likes to exercise and spend time with friends. We take major everywhere with us. We go on vacations. We will not let this disease stop us from doing anything. I'm still me with a son who has CF. And I just want this to be the thing he has. It's a part of him, but it doesn't define him. Since her son's diagnosis, Jackie Strube has become actively involved in the cystic fibrosis community, where she serves as a state advocate in Iowa for the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation and serves as the foundation's 2019 National Advocacy Co-Chair. This past year, Principal Financial was named one of the 100 best companies by Working Mother, an advocacy organization for the more than 17 million moms in the U.S. who are devoted to their families and committed to their careers. In turn, Principal Financial named Jackie as their Working Mother of the Year. We want to welcome to the show Miriam Lewis, the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer for Principal Financial. Thanks for joining us, Miriam. Thank you, and thanks for having me. Principal Financial has over 17,000 employees worldwide. The Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer sounds like a big role. Tell us more about the role of a Diversity and Inclusion Officer. Absolutely. So it is a big role, but frankly, it's not just my job. Right. It, uh, I like to say, like the marketers often say, DNI, like they often say that marketing is too important to be left to the marketers. Mm. DNI is the same way. It's too important to be left to the DNI practitioners. Um, my responsibility is for designing and implementing strategies that ensure we're attracting and retaining a diverse pool of talent. I'm also responsible for increasing employee performance, driving better understanding of our customers, and ultimately improving business results. Everyone at Principal has a role to play in fostering and fostering diversity and inclusion because it is that big job that you described. I just get to lead the efforts. Could you um, kind of break down a little bit the difference between diversity and inclusion? Like define yeah, each of those I a little bit more. I define diversity as everything that I am and it's everything that I'm not. And because it's the things that I'm not, that's what makes me dependent on others and makes us better together. So inclusion is this deep sense of belonging or just feeling at home. Do I feel at home when I'm at work? Do I feel comfortable? When you bring the two together, diversity and inclusion is valuing everyone's perspective and winning together. Great. I mean, so it's really about empathy when it comes down to it. It's just about having empathy for those who are around you. Yes, that is so important. And what I would add to that is sometimes it's about just remembering. Um, when I say just remembering, life happens to everyone. In fact, either you are you or your family, you're in a situation, you just came out of a situation, or you're headed towards one. And we could all pause and say where we are, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but yeah. So um, understanding that someday you may need support. And following the platinum rule is so important. Uh, the platinum rule, we all know it, treat people better than you want to be treated. 
after all, how you treat others is how you invite them to treat you. Hmm. That's a really good rule to follow. Well, the story we shared today, I know you had a chance to look at it, Jackie uh, story um, and, and Sean's kind of mashed together. And one of the, I think the amazing thing with it is how much they showed support for one another, how much support, support Jackie's team gave her. Um, yes. And so when illness and tragedy can often lead to someone falling out of the workforce, how is a company the size of principal able to help employees through challenges like Jackie faced with her with her child? Absolutely. I really think it comes down to having the right culture as well as the right policies and practices in place. Culturally, uh, servant leadership is big at principal. Our leaders exist to serve. It's just that simple. We serve our employees on their good, their bad, and their ugly days. While we don't get to choose the type of day an employee will have, we get to choose to be empathetic and understanding. The more we know and understand each other, the better we can support one another. From a policy and practice perspective, you're right. We have over 17,000 employees worldwide. And nearly 7,000 of them sit outside of the United States. We know, we get it, we recognize that people experience challenges and changes that impact both their work. And even more importantly, we know that it, that those changes can't be compartmentalized. People don't have a separate work life and a home life. We have a life, that's all we have. And our policies and our practices are in place to help our employees cope with, as well as adapt to those life changes. So um, what we do is we try and maintain, or we maintain, I should say, very flexible policies. They allow our employees to work with employees. They allow our leaders to work with employees to flex their work hours, flex their work days, or even flex their work location to help ease the burden during difficult times, or even to accommodate an ongoing work-life balance need. We also have robust time away from work programs that allow for paid time away from work for when life happens. At our headquarters, and I don't know if you visited our headquarters, if not, I'd love to give you a tour. Oh, we, we, we got amenities. one. Yeah, we, yeah, we, we did. Okay. It's, a, it's, it's an amazing it's like, campus. <clears throat> several blocks, and it, there was like you sit down and talk to a doctor through like video conference, and just we it, it was another world for us. I mean, it's country a, boys it's from city, Indiana. It's a city within a city. Yeah. <laughs> so you so you get my experience, right? I'm from Mobile, Alabama, and when I walked into Principal, I was like, wow. <laughs> yeah, that atrium. It's like uh, how many stories oh, tall? It's I don't know. Yeah, it's yeah. a it's a big it's place. Breathtaking. Yeah. So at our headquarters, we have on-site amenities such as a pharmacy, a daycare. We have a premier wellness facility to support physical and mental health. And then lastly, we encourage our employees to just relax, refresh, rejuvenate, to care for themselves so that in turn they can provide the best care possible to our customers. So uh, Prince was really a holistic company. It's about the employee and it's about the customer. Yeah, well, this story with with um, um, should really show that two people really trying to have empathy for the other person's position. So on, yeah. on a coworker level, just what advice do you have for you know most of us have coworkers? How can we be their 
better for those who we're working with when they experience a sudden illness or life-changing event? Yeah, there are probably as many ways to support coworkers as there are coworkers. So maybe I'll offer just a couple of thoughts uh, that readily come to my mind. First, um, if you see something, say something. If you see a coworker, uh, see a change in a coworker, don't be afraid to ask, are you okay? Then just listen to them. It's not about having the answers. It could be as simple as referring a coworker to the Employee Assistance Program. This program provides free counseling services for employees and their family members facing tough situations such as birth, adoption, caregiving, death, mental health, parenting, and the list goes on and on. I want to get to this idea of flexibility that you talked about earlier. I mean, principal has been recognized by multiple different groups year after year, working mother being one of them, and for your diversity practices in hiring, retaining, and promoting. And in 2017, the Flexible Time Off program was instituted where full-time exempt employees are encouraged to personalize the amount of time taken based on their own needs and work situation. And on top of all that, you have gender-neutral birth leave for up to 10 weeks. This already sounds like a fairly inclusive place to work. So where do you go from here? Yes, thanks for pointing out our strong foundation of success. And um, we're not perfect. Our CEO, Dan Halston, would be the first to tell you that we're not perfect and that we can always do better. I joined Principal just in July, and my first priority has been to gain a really deep understanding of both the business and the culture. To enable that, I've connected with over 900 employees, customers, and advisors. So I've been quite busy in my four months at principal. Yes, yes. Um, Our DNI strategic imperatives are to really embolden our talent, our employees, to better serve our customers and to grow our business. We're focusing on advancing diversity and advancing inclusion as they are equally important. First and foremost, we're connecting diversity and inclusion to the business. We understand the business value for diversity and inclusion in terms of under, in terms of understanding our customer base and driving innovation. And we are exploring ways to make sure we are tapping into the deep pool of knowledge and experience that our employees bring to the table. So what does that look like on uh, the ground level when in terms of yeah. how that diversity enriches uh, one's business or culture. Absolutely. So at principle, uh, we're not interested in diversity for diversity's sake. Let's just see how many diverse people we can add to our organization. We're leveraging diversity to improve our customer base and to improve our driving and, and, and drive more innovation. So on the ground level, it looks like from a talent pipeline perspective, we're deepening our talent search into more diverse communities. As I said, I'm originally from Mobile, Alabama, and I've lived in Atlanta for 26 years. So I'm a prime example of that. And because of this tight labor market, it's more important now than ever to cast a net, a wide net to attract the best possible candidate. Uh, How long have you been in diversity and inclusion, like as a career? Sure. So this is my sixth year in diversity and inclusion. And prior to that, I worked in the business. I've led uh, large operations at the Coca-Cola company, as well as the Clorox company. 
So how, and just in general, how in terms of the diversity, inclusion, like space and 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 how people are approaching uh, it in their workforce, how has it changed since you've become aware of it? Yes, so the biggest change I would say is the focus or the shift to focusing on both diversity and inclusion. Uh, we've always said diversity and inclusion, but it's been more of diversity or inclusion and many companies led with diversity. Now we all understand the value of advancing both. Um, and if you create and really double down on inclusion, that broadening of your consideration set that I share with in the talent acquisition space, also in your supplier management, diversity supplier management space. And if you really focus on inclusion, what that leads to with the outcome is diversity. So I think that now we do understand the importance of an inclusive environment which is what really helps employees to thrive, do their best work, and help companies to grow. What advice do you have for other organizations that strive to develop a more inclusive and transparent environment for their employees? Yeah, so first I would say be very transparent and clear on your why. Why do you want a more diverse workforce and an inclusive culture? Don't leave that to others to define for you. And then just make sure your actions are tied to your why. Secondly, I'd offer um, culture comes from the top. Make sure your executive team embrace the value of diversity and inclusion and that they demonstrate that DNI is important by walking the walk, not just talking the talk. Because what's important to my boss is important to me. So if my boss is showing and taking actions and positive steps toward being more inclusive, I am going to mimic that behavior. The, this team, the executive team, they own the culture and they have the power to create major lasting cultural changes. And that's what's needed. Um, once the tone is set at the top, it's time to really just do a lot of listening. Inclusive leaders understand the tone at the top, the mood in the middle, and the buzz at the bottom. Mm-hmm. So uh, assessing your organization's current culture, deciding where you want to be in, say, three to five years, and then just charting your path to get there. It's also important to foster dialogue, networking, and understanding through employee resource groups and support networks. Then the last thing I'd offer is that to set specific measurable goals and hold leaders accountable. What gets measured gets done. Mm-hmm. On average, how long would you say it takes for an organizational culture to begin to change where you're starting to see those first movements of diversity and inclusion work actually working? Yeah. So in the diversity and inclusion space, uh, Deloitte has this beautiful journey map and it starts, most companies start with compliance and then they move to programming. And then there's this leader led where the momentum really really starts. And that's the level three of that phase and then into an integrated. So the levels one and two are necessary, but in those levels, you don't see much progress until it gets embedded into the organization. The leaders are held accountable and that they are walking the walk of diversity and inclusion. So from a timing perspective, um, what accelerates the pace is the company's appetite for change. So it depends on what your current culture is and how you want to approach it. 
But I would say that most companies should be able to see immediate change after going through those first two stages, uh, three to five years out, with seeing sustainable uh, change, I would say. Miriam Lewis, Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer for Principal Financial, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been my privilege. To listen to past episodes of this program, visit indianapublicradio.org slash The Facing Project. From there, you can subscribe to the podcast where you'll get episodes of The Facing Project delivered to your device each month. Listeners can contribute stories or volunteer to share the stories of others with The Facing Project that may appear on the show. More information at facingproject.com slash inspireaction. And to continue the conversation about this episode, find us on Facebook at The Facing Project. The Facing Project is recorded at Indiana Public Radio at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana, and is produced by Sean Ashcraft. The show is distributed nationally through PRX. We are your hosts, Kelsey Timmerman and J.R. Jameson. Until next time, we wish you the courage to share your own story and the empathy to listen to others. Mm-hmm.